Welcome to the Scandinavian Mind podcast. I'm Conrad Olsen, founder and editor-in-chief of Scandinavian Mind. My guest today is Jody Muter-Hamilton, founder and CEO of Other Day and Lab 2030. Jody is a London-based communications specialist, podcaster, and firm advocate for change towards a sustainable fashion future. I find her to be one of the most thoughtful persons on this subject. Her podcast and consultancy Other Day and the non-profit initiative Lab 2030 provides an excellent resource for discussions on the subject, with several reports coming out in the near future. She is also a partner in Fashion Roundtable, a leading think tank for the fashion industry. In this conversation we talk about the three horizons for change in fashion, how to build brands with a sustainable approach from the start, her upcoming report on burnout and mental illness in the fashion industry, and how technology and gaming can help fashion be fun again. The Scandinavian Mind podcast is a bi-weekly show about the intersection of lifestyle and technology. Every Wednesday we publish an in-depth interview with an innovator from the worlds of design, fashion, beauty, mobility or tech. And every other Friday we publish a panel talk or other behind-the-scenes content from the world of Scandinavian Mind. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to stay updated on the latest news and learn about upcoming talks and events. Visit scandinavianmind.com newsletter. Here now, my conversation with Jody Muter-Hamilton. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Jody Muter Hamilton, founder of Other Day and Lab 2030, uh, phoning in from uh, London, UK. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Conrad. How are you? Did I get that right? You're in London, right? Yes, I'm in South London currently, yes, and have been pretty much here for about a year and now sat, sat at this desk. Um, yeah. Well, you seem to have been uh, busy uh, <laughs> and I, I keep following your work and you're doing excellent work and thoughtful work around uh, the issue of sustainability in the fashion system. So I thought we'd just you know, dive into that immediately. Um, just, just for the listeners, set up these two entities that you are operating mm-hmm. under. You have Other Day, which is sort of like your media consultancy, and then you do Lab at 2030. So just break it down for us. Yep, sure. So Other Day is a sustainability and communications consultancy. We were born actually out of um, an editorial and podcast platform. So that came first and then kind of we needed to essentially pay for those those things. So we need to um, kind of we've been embedding ourselves in the space, in the sustainability, in fashion space and have gained clients through that kind of really deep understanding of the issues, but also um, how we communicate those out and and make them resonate in the right sorts of way and reach the right people. Mm, mm. Um, And then Lab Lab 2030, um, we've actually been on a bit of a journey with that, which I can discuss later with you, um, should you want to dig into it. But we it's essentially a research lab um, for fashion and it's very much around collecting primary data and understanding what then the fashion industry can do with this data um, once we've unearthed it essentially 
Fascinating. I, I want to get into all, all that stuff, but just to begin with, uh, you know, as a sort of a foundation for for all the work that you do, I'm curious. How do you define um, the issue of sustainability in fashion? How, how do you? Is there a framework for for the problem uh, in your mind? Um. Yes. Yes, and no. I think what's interesting is that you have framed it as an issue. Um, in the first place so that that's an interesting thing to discuss anyway but um i think i look at things in terms of um how we can approach things in speeds which might seem a little bit strange but it it suits the sort of work that i do and across the different areas that i work across so um if we think about um government or legislation or parliamentarians and then I think of those as something that can be quite effectual for systemic long-term change um, that can be quite slow so the work there is mm. fairly slow um, the work that you can do around sort of supply chains or brands and, and kind of education and, and that sort of thing is medium term and then how we can approach consumers I find as it can be quite quick to make a change quite instantly. So um, a consumer on day one can stop buying with a certain brand and never buy with them again. You know, um, a brand, it takes years to build up a great supply chain, or it could be overnight, but it's a bit, bit slower. And then the government to ultimately put in place legislation to um, support or um, be able to hold people to account can take years so yeah. I kind of think of it in that sense um, because to extrapolate certain issues um, that they're, they're all so interlinked that actually they touch on all these sections so for me I try and think about the issue as a whole and how I can approach making change across those different speeds that's super fascinating I've never heard anyone <laughs> break it down like that before and of course all these you know you know, short to medium to long term, uh, you know, paced uh, uh, arenas, mm. they need to be part of this uh, solution, right? Yeah, indeed. Because um, I often get asked what, um, you know, who's responsible or who who should make the change or who, who is it in the hands of? And actually, it's all of us, um, mm. whether you sit as a, as a, we're all consumers. And I think, you know, the dialogue is moving away from consumer to citizen and, and having the power over that sort of thing as well. So I think we are all responsible to ultimately if we're talking about in a bigger sense, leave the planet in a better state than it is currently today. Mm. And in terms of, of your work, uh, and you can break this down however you want, <laughs> where do you spend most time in these? Is mm. it with the brands uh, mostly or, or do you do you know legislative uh, uh, lobbying and that sort of stuff as well? So ultimately, um, with Fashion Roundtable, who are a client, but I'm also a partner in the business with, um, I, you know, it's really hard to break down in time because we we tend to have things that crop up at different at different points. So therefore, I'll need to focus um, a critical path around something. So, for example, mm. um, on the 6th of May, which is Thursday, we've got our Brexit report coming out. So there's a lot of work behind the scenes that do that. You know, in a comms sense, we've got to like 
um, work on that around that date. And then, you know, a client that I'm working with um, who has an accessories brand, her product launches around the autumn kind of time. So it's very time dependent on that, where my focus needs to go. So it has to really be quite fluid and shift. Um, and the things that get kind of left at the bottom of the pile are the things that I um, want to do, perhaps recording a podcast with Conrad, you know, so it's <laughs> it's these things kind of get, um, you know, the less, I think it's also centered around what you're doing for other people and how time dependent that is, but also I've learned to get better at dealing with um, time pressures that aren't controlled by someone else so what I mean by that is I personally put a lot of pressure on myself to say we've been working on a report called defining success for I would say six months now and it was supposed to go out in January now Mm. this has no commercial element attached to it it's entirely from other day we've had various um, authors write sections and this sort of thing but I've been killing myself being like it's got to go out January and then it's now May. So it's finally going out next week. But how, what's important to me is how I feel about that and how that impacts um, other people's work, say clients work or fashion around table or whoever, but also at the end of the day, how does that make me feel? Um, and can I sit with that and be less stressed about that? So I think through the pandemic, we've learned to deal with pressures in different sorts of ways and learn to sit with them a bit longer perhaps um so yes so hopefully that report will go out next week tell me about the Um, report what what would what will you know include and uh, i'm certainly no stranger to to (laughs) developing uh, products that that you do for uh, maybe less commercial value Uh, it's it's interesting so on um other day two of our kind of big big kind of hitting articles were about um, ones entitled mental health in the fashion industry. And that still continues to be one of our top um, read articles. And the other one was around burnout um, and how fashion and creative people cope with that or don't cope with it. And that led me to believe there needs to be more work done in this space that we're really not addressing it. Um, So essentially the defining success report looks at creating a new vision for the fashion industry based on success with different measures. Um, So is success wellness? Is it creativity and community? Is it a better planet? You know, we're trying to redefine what our way of of being successful is. So that's what we're opening the conversation um, to be, to, to allow people to have a bit more space to think about that, um, away from monetary terms but actually mm. also very connected to monetary terms as well um because we've got two special podcast episodes that accompany it one is entirely focused around money and finance and things like that and the other one is um around creativity so it's you're continually always balancing these elements of um yeah what makes success um whether that's from a planetary point of view a financial point of view a personal wellness or yeah kind of emotional point of view so that's what we're exploring in that 
And how do you assess the, the, the sort of demand for that type of perspective in the fashion industry right now? Are brands open to this, mm. uh, you know, adding these sort of uh, added layers of, of, of success as you, as you define it? I think we have to be. I think, you know, we, we were aware that um, essentially consumption or rate of growth has got us into a position whereby um, the planet is not healthy. And mm. that also impacts on our own personal health as well and mental health and well-being. So I think it, it's obvious these things are laid in front of us. So we have to provide um, or work through what a different kind of metric could look like really um and there's already been some work done in this space with the likes of um uh, Kate Fletcher and Matilda Tam's earth logic plan um that's like a really key thing to show how we can look at a different growth metric or not growth um and also even um donor economics and and things like that so that this is happening um already uh yeah Wonderful. So, and and how how do you advise brands uh, in in this regard? If you do, I'm not sure, mm. entirely sure how what what the state of of, of your uh, consultancy is. But you've certainly you have a background in running your own brand, so you know mm. pretty much firsthand the challenges of, of building something that that you know is responsible uh, in in the, the these sort of success levels that you're talking about mm. right now. Um, how do you how would you advise a brand who wants to apply these layers to their business mm. I think it's really difficult <laughs> I think we're still searching for that holy grail you right. know of, of money meets happiness meets um, product and being able to actually ultimately you need support to have a brand you need to be able to grow but not too much you know and what does that look like and um, understanding that growth is not perhaps infinite is is mm. what I would say um, you know for some people the best model is to have um, two or three people in a team and that is it and um, I can't remember who did it but there was a study based around there's a company who have always said they would never have more than sort of 60 employees and that's quite interesting because you start to understand a sense of um, how things are linked. And once you grow beyond a certain amount, does it become um, immanageable and also ineffectual? So I think considering that, you know, what does it take to get your business or brand operational, um, sustainable in a, in a sense from a, a holistic and health point of view? Um, and be able to understand what the figures are behind that. So if you're trying to drive a five million pound revenue um, turnover per year, what does that look like? How many people do you need to do that? And ultimately for me, is that sustainable as a business? Well, I would hate, I'd say no, you know? So it's, <laughs> can we create smaller businesses that are based around, um, something else so i don't know i can't exactly articulate what that something else is but it, it's perhaps a bit smaller you know and to me when i when i look at the the i'm sorry to use the term issue of sustainability i'm not sure that was the, the <laughs> no, correct I, I move don't know whether I it, like... no i don't know whether it is or not i think it's interesting <laughs> because i think i think we are in an issue yeah i think we are yeah. you know i think yeah. it's a problem that we all have to come together and solve um but i also think 
the solutions are yes innovation because as you know i'm a big advocate for that but also um looking back at what's happened before you know looking at um you know, ancestral ways of growing and, and things mm. like this. So I think it is an issue, but I think the answers are already there. Mm. When I observe this, I, I, I tend to sort of, I, I swing back and forth in a way, because on the one hand, you have something that's kind of spiraled out of control in terms of mm. the amount of garments that we produce every year on this planet. And it's far yeah. more than we you know, ever, you know, can wear, basically, you know, we, we would be, someone told me we, we would sustain ourselves with clothing for the next 50 years, we would just stop producing stuff now. I'm not sure that number is, is totally accurate, but but it seems uh, reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, on one hand, you know, it's a, it's, it's a problem of massive scale that in a sense need uh, uh, solutions of massive scale, Mm-hmm. also but at the same time you're saying it, it could be something more local more here, here and now more more in the sort of small uh decisions but i'm curious how, how do you feel about sort of the big players the fast fashion brands that are you know producing a, a you know a large part of these garments versus the the small players that to, in my mind maybe have it easier it could be mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's it's sometimes and maybe I'm, I'm i'm pissing some brands off here but sometimes it's easier to do something sustainably and responsibly when you're small because you have fewer people and a smaller operation to care for versus if you are you know a glo- big global company that in a sense have spiraled out of control how do you how do you sort of steer that boat mm-hmm. in the in the other direction do you have a an intuition here a sense here i think you've hit the nail on the head so i in my mind think of it about a boat like you've just said actually which is you know you have a large boat it's huge to turn around and it'll take a long time back mm. to the speeds thing but mm. um if you can turn that boat around and you can be decisive and actually change course then it the impact is way beyond anything that of a small brand in terms of scale of impact but um i think we need to sort of bring it back to thinking about the human the humans behind that so if you're a small brand and you um essentially work with local communities and things like that for example there's a, a brand in the uk called birdsong birdsong london and they do amazing work and you know there's only two of them in that business and they have a great impact for the people that they work with directly and they need to increase, not necessarily increase the scale of that business, but be able to positively benefit more people through their work. So ultimately they do need to scale beyond what they are now, mm. um, but probably not mass, like massively amounts that wouldn't really align with their personal values. But, and then I think about, um, you know, the likes of, say, H&M or, or big brands. And I think they do have a real opportunity to perhaps put some investment behind innovation that could really change things. Um, and I think, personally, I'm more positive and solutions-driven than, you know, calling people out because I don't really right. think that's beneficial. And I think what we need to do is work together to solutions. And where the gap lies between the big and the small are... Um, small brands don't have the infrastructure the finance the support to change certain things in the direction they want to so for example if they're looking to use um, an innovative fabric they have to have um, 
So, you know, be able to place huge orders that that doesn't happen. So Mm. therefore, what we need to build up um, is a system whereby the larger brands can enable the smaller producers to have access to things. So it becomes more of an ecosystem rather than large versus small. And what I'd really like to see is how a kind of cross-learning and a cross-pollination between sizes of brands could happen because we do have you know, there's so much data and intelligence and all these kinds of things that large brands do have, but where does it go and and what does it benefit, you know, beyond their own company? So can we encourage a bit more of that collaboration and the sharing and shared learnings across large and small, um, which is what I'd personally like to see and kind of what we're trying to work a little bit with um, around with Lab 2030 as well. Shared learnings. I, I really like that. And just to pause for a second to I just what you just said is, is I think is so powerful and, and points towards something that really could have an impact. And, and I always talk about this, this thing that that uh, the, the large players, they're the ones with uh, at least an opportunity to bring about change on scale. So mm-hmm. maybe they still are aren't doing things the way we would hope or the way the planet you know kind of appreciates in terms of long-term sustainability but, but but it's also there that we can actually do things do you have examples of innovations that have come about the last say year or two uh, different processes or or, or mm-hmm. examples of these shared learnings that that you want to uh, uh, highlight i think um You've, I think you know circular systems, don't you? And, and the kind of work that they do and sure. renew cell. Yeah. Um, so that's something on scale, you know, that's a, a massive scale where basically you can recycle um, textiles because that's still, if they're mixed fibers, it's still really mm. difficult and we need to enable that at scale. And we also need big investment to do that because it is highly intensive or very innovative and you know all these things need to happen so i would say that and how they can roll it out perhaps later will be quite interesting to smaller brands um and also thinking about how we can create some sort of centralized textile collection so it's not necessarily just about um, one brand and their relationship, it becomes, right. you know, could could everyone in, in a certain city use this way? And that's how you get to a different sort of scale. So I think, um, again, back to the, the sort of point about collaboration and so forth, that we need to encourage that, but also have systems and structures in place that can collect these textiles or whatever it is that we're actually talking about. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm actually trying to learn more about this right now, and it's my understanding that the, there are actually EU initiatives. Uh, I'm not sure how much that applies to you guys anymore, but but I'm uh, there, there sadly, are, yeah, I think we are, will we will do something around that. Though, yeah, yes. yeah, but there are EU initiatives yeah. talking about you know uh, finding mm. different standards in, in the textile industry, and and from my understanding, and I'm, I'm very early in my research on this, but we it is an industry that's very undefined uh, uh, in a way. So we mm-hmm. haven't defined standards. There aren't very much centralized processes and uh, of the likes. And I think mm-hmm. it seems like there's a great opportunity just in this field. It sounds kind of <laughs> boring and, and uh, bureaucratic <laughs> in a way, but I, but I think uh, to, 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 to tackle this issue, you have mm-hmm. to go about it in that direction as well. 
I would agree. I think, you know, um, the Victorians were very good at putting things in place. And I think we need to consider that in terms of fashion system as well. So, Mm. um, you know, what does our waste system look like now for fashion? Is the infrastructure provided from government? Is it elsewhere? Mm. Um, What do we need to deal with that? Because actually... Um, we have as big a waste problem as the Victorians did. So, um, you know, so I think we need to approach it in that really um, infrastructure kind of way. And yes, it perhaps is boring, but it could really make a big difference. Um, And that's why we need the likes of governments to step in. And as Mm. you mentioned, there are some EU directives around things. Um, So the French have passed their um, waste one, which essentially says that, you know, you can't, burn clothes and you can't have waste and you've got to be responsible for it so um in the uk we're looking at a similar thing probably my sense is we will take guidance from the french law anyway but um you know we're looking at extended producer responsibility so what does that look like and how can that be passed on to retailers or brands or who pays for managing the the kind of waste of these products at the end Mm. of the day because um my sense is that it shouldn't be the consumer um it should be whoever makes these things but perhaps not necessarily the actual um factories and manufacturers because again should that responsibility be with the brand or the factory who are already pushed into a corner to reduce prices anyway? Yeah, I feel like also the, there's this huge opportunity around recycling. And I, uh, the number I heard uh, the other year, and that might have changed, but we're at somewhere around 1% of all textiles is being recycled. It's, it's just mm. a staggeringly low uh, amount. And I feel like there's a, just a huge business opportunity for any, you know, at least in Sweden, I count two or three major initiatives that are, are getting huge funding just around mm. recycling uh, textiles. Um, but but uh, so the question remains, wh- whose responsibility is it? But but I, I feel like the industry also needs these type of pretty practical uh, solutions because, you know, if you are a brand of, of smaller or mid-sized, where do you go? Uh, mm-hmm. How do you bring about these change? You know, it's it's very hard to invest in these processes by, by yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I would also add that um, smaller brands have to be uh, more innovative with their use of waste or fabrics mm. or scraps or whatever, because ultimately as a small brand you see waste as lost revenue you know it's there you're Mm. looking at it on the cutting room floor or wherever it is and you're like how can I make some money out of this and not waste it so um you know people do things like um don't know if you know there's a there's a designer called Hannah Fiedler and she had some beautiful like silk that she had um for her clothes and then she's woven a beautiful clutch bag for example with it you know so it's it's looking at those sorts of things and being able to put put things in place, whether you're large or small, that enables less waste or ideally yeah. none. You know, use design practices. Look at your literally look at your designs and think, how can I create less waste with this? Or um, you know, could I share it with someone else? Back to the, I feel like I'm drumming the bang, banging the drum for shared stuff. But you know, it's can someone else use this? Yeah. Can I use something they're using? Um, you know, can we create a collective of designers that want to use the same fabric or something? You know, so 
Um, it just makes everyone's life a bit easier, perhaps. I think it's fascinating how, how how many times when you talk when you go down the avenue of innovation you you sort of end up in 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 craftsmanship and sort mm. of artisanal uh, skills that, that that sometimes that's the solution yeah. uh, to to an issue like this. How do you, how much are you into uh, you know technology? There's a lot of talk right now of fashion and gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, huge hype the past few weeks around NFTs. We see you know some movement around fashion mm-hmm. there, at least around sneakers and and collectibles like that. Um, you know, are you covering this this area at all? And where is there is there a way forward for fashion in in the gaming space or vice versa? I think um, in I. I'm going to rewind a little bit because mm. actually I built an app with someone about eight years ago, which was um, essentially the world's first ever stylist app. And we recruited personal stylists to use it. Um, and then we started white labeling it out. And then I actually worked later with a company who kind of pushed that a lot further um, called Proximity Insight. And they essentially have a clientele tool. And Previously, the first ever World Stylist app, we worked with them to develop, um, was called iBeacon at the time, and we put this near field um, detection into an app, released it at um, Dreamforce, which is Salesforce's huge um, annual summit in San Mm. Francisco, and basically it was the first ever in-app nft triggered thing that happened so wow yes i early adopter i've been on that for a while yeah um so it's interesting for me that we're having a discussion today around that Mm. and the power of that because as we know things take time to come to scale um the proximity insights found like co-founder is a lady called kathy mccabe and she was at burberry when they did the art of the trench which was again uh, where Burberry surfaced information um, to consumers to see around the trench and things like that. So, you know, this has been happening quite a lot, but it, it's not necessarily before being linked to um, sustainability. So that's obviously what I'm personally more interested, the capabilities mm. of that now um, and how sustainability information is delivered to people. Um, again, something that we're exploring with Lab 2030 is around how you can use innovative technologies to present information. Um, and we'll have something coming out in August with that, as long as every as long as we can do everything around it um, in time, which I, I will try my best to not slip that deadline. Um, so yeah, it's about the presentation of information, how that's put into the hands of the consumer, which is quite fascinating, and what that information makes them do or think or act. Um, yeah, so I would say that. And also the gaming element of it. I remember when um, I first saw kind of fashion getting into gaming, as it were, I thought I was a little bit hesitant, but I was also thinking this could be really exciting because actually what we've lost a little bit within fashion is fun and joy and kind of all these things that make us happy and want to be in the fashion industry or want to enjoy fashion. Um, And, you know, with the, with the likes of um, digital fashion as well, we have a huge opportunity to have fun again and explore and kind of look at our identities as another self. So, um, 
a friend of mine, Corinna's just launched her The Dematerialized, which is essentially um, where you can purchase clothing for your digital self. Um, and I find that fascinating. And yeah, it's it's a really interesting space to be in, I think. De- dematerialized. Yeah. Yeah, that's something to look up. I see yeah. more and more of these initiatives. I mean, I, I just recently was uh, contacted by a young designer here in, in Stockholm who mm-hmm. um, works for H&M but, but does sort of digital fashion on the side. Mm. That's a sort of side hustle selling, uh, um, you know, d- digital skins, uh, uh, things for people to wear on their Instagram feed mm. and, and, and so forth. And and to me, I, I've, I, I'm sure there's, uh, I, I know there's a generational divide here somehow. You know, my daughter is 10 years old. She wants her allowance to go to you know only digital you know mm. garments and goods and features and hats and clothes and, and stuff like that on the platforms that she is on uh and uh, it seems to me that she doesn't really um she doesn't make any distinguish uh distinguish she doesn't distinguish between her physical self and her avatar so she Entirely, can say to me yeah. dad do you think i should wear this hat and she holds up her phone and, and she shows her avatar with a hat. And so mm-hmm. it, it, that is her in, in, in her sense because that's the avatar she uses to uh, meet her friends or, or hang out uh, after school. So I've, I feel like we're just in the beginning of something completely um, different here. And, and you know, the argument, of course, I mean, I'm not saying digital uh, assets, anything, uh, you know, especially in the terms of crypto and, and NFTs. It's not automatically better for the planet um, mm. the way these are, are minted yeah. and, and how much energy it takes to, mm-hmm. to create them. But it, it's definitely an avenue down where uh, perhaps my daughter's generation will buy less physical stuff because mm. they will get whatever, um, you know, expressive need or, or you know, uh, identification need perhaps... Um, uh, uh, she will get that in these sort of digital world worlds rather than the physical, yeah. uh, and and and, and I, I agree with you there. I think there's a sense of excitement, a f- sense of freedom in the digital space mm. that the f- the fashion industry has kind of got lost because it's been so commoditized. Yeah, I would agree, and I entirely agree with what you said about the difference between um, real and physical worlds. I mm. think that the younger generation don't why would they think they're different because particularly at the moment you know they spent the past year mainly on digital so that is becoming more prevalent than the real world you know um which which is fascinating you know it's for them to be able to move quite fluidly between these worlds and and really value both of them in the same way is yeah like i say fascinating i'm really intrigued by it um and I think there's people doing incredible things in the space as well. So even in our um, defining success report, you know, we've got a lovely Q&A with um, the fabricant and I'm very dear friends with um, Leanne mm. from um, the Institute of Digital Fashion. And they are doing some incredibly mm. beautiful work. Um, if you want to look at what digital craftsmanship is, that is it. Um, and it's something that I'm looking to explore further because I think this the idea of digital craftsmanship is is quite fascinating in itself anyway and how that also impacts um like you said sustainability because you know looking on a really basic level like what do you charge for something that's taken a week Mm. 
to create digitally and, and at what point do you recruit recoup your um man hours is it when you reach a hundred sales of these items or do you charge a thousand pounds for so you know it's quite fascinating to look at commoditizing um, a digital asset basically yeah i think the question then becomes will the traditional fashion or garment industry catch on that's where Mm -hmm. i see a sort of a discrepancy and and uh you know, for many people in the, in the traditional fashion industry, uh, all of this digital craftsmanship or buying virtual goods, so everything, mm. it, it's, fly, it's sort of counterintuitive. It flies in the face of what we believe fashion industry is because mm. traditionally it's been a, about physical garments, things you put on your actual physical body, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, my worry, or I'm not sure it's a worry, but uh, concern or perhaps uh, prediction would be that large parts of the fashion industry won't catch on and large parts of um say the gaming industry who are more uh, adept and more you know used to you know playing in this in this arena will uh take a Mm. a big chunk of this market right because you know Mm -hmm. we have a Fortnite selling what is it three billion dollars worth of skins every Mm -hmm. year what's to say that's not fashion right Mm -hmm. exactly and i think it lies to be determined by the fashion brands if they want to be part of that or they don't um mm. and it, i would have thought if they're huge brands and, and want to make more money it's just another product line for them right so um or if it's a company entirely based around handcraft artisan skills um what does that look like for them does mm. it mean that um yeah it, it does it mean that they only produce one and release one and create that in in a different world um and who are the artisans making it then digitally and how do Mm. you transfer that traditional craft of say um weaving to a digital weaver and can they work together to to kind of create something together i don't know um i don't think we're quite at that stage yet or i think we probably are but um less in the ether i would say but sure sure i can't wait to see what happens in that sense Can you let's let's uh, pivot uh, b- behind the, uh, uh, the scenes in a in a way and and uh, in your history? I'm curious because you have a background in producing your own or or running your own brand. So mm-hmm. is that how you came into the fashion industry to to begin with? So I actually studied fashion at Kingston University um, and graduated in 2001. So uh, 20 years ago. Um, And I kind of worked in the fashion industry and PR and marketing and kind of didn't really have a title at the time then, but it was definitely brand management um, and kind of ensuring that brands were kind of presented in the right way. Mm. Um, And I kind of, I've always been a keen swimmer. So um, I, and my family history, my kind of mum actually had a knitting shop and haberdashery wool shop um and my gran was um in the mills in yorkshire so it's kind of always been there coupled with actually my aunt uh owns a lake so a windsurfing lake um and kiteboarding and all that sort of stuff so it was like this weird kind of craft meets you know, I used to try and swim in the, well, I did swim in the lake, but it was cold, um, and wearing wetsuits and things like that. So it's kind of like in my head, I want to create a brand that's about swimming, but also, um, 
craft and kind of how can I bring those two together so in 2008 I created um, what was called Black Neon at the time Um, but before that I thought I need some real experience in swimwear design because I can pattern cut and things but swimwear is actually very technical Um, so I got a place working for six months in a factory in Mauritius as head of design and sampling um, and worked with people there day in and day out to do swimwear um, and obviously had a lot of uh, insights then it was a fascinating time particularly because I well I was basically one of the only women and white women there and um, I had to learn quite quickly how to speak very badly uh, Creole and kind of get a, a commonality of understanding there um, which actually came back to the the sort of craft side of things where I used to just sit and kind of show them what needed to be done on the sewing machine. Um, and that was actually quite a nice thing to be able to do. But anyway, I came back, launched um, Black Neon into fundamentally um, a recession. And I was working with um, UK based manufacturers and it was it was hard work <laughs> to, to say the least. Um, and yeah, kind of a lot of learnings from that and kind of a lot of debt. And, you know, I now advise people to be very careful around where you get your debt from and how you pay that back and how you financially plan, um, you know, if you've already spent, like, for example, I launched a website and it was like 10 grand just to do an mm. e-commerce website, which now you can do on Squarespace, um, a lot cheaper than that. Right. But yeah, kind of back in the day you couldn't and I was on the phone to like WorldPay connecting this website to to get, you know, it's kind of crazy to think now about that, but yeah. Um so that's kind of where my initial kind of needing to have something I would didn't even label the swimwear brand as ethical then, but it was um mm. and sustainable probably not in a sense of materials because it was like, you know, petro-based chemicals aren't sustainable mm. <laughs> but I did work with amazing mills so Lamonta um in Italy so they're all like the best fabrics and stuff but just really difficult you know RRP for something like that was 130 pounds which people at that time were just not willing to pay for no um but maybe now 12 years on they might <laughs> Well, so, yeah. it seemed like you were an early adopter with that as well. <laughs> uh, it's, we talked about definitions in the, in the beginning of this conversation. Mm. I'm curious about, you know, there's always this sort of debate around um, uh, sustainability, um, greenwashing. Uh, someone uh, learned, taught me the term green hushing uh, mm. a, a, few, a few months ago, which I hadn't heard before. There's this sort of notion that brands keep shut about the things they are actually doing. Uh, because Mm. they don't want to be accused of being greenwashing because obviously Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, the entirety of your operation can't be 100% sustainable, even if you, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, balance out your carbon emissions and Mm -hmm. all that, you know, running a brand producing stuff is always being sort of somewhat harmful on the environment. Do you use these terms at all? Sustainability, greenwashing? Are they useful for this discussion, do you think? I think yes and no. So I think um, when words become overused, then they're not. But mm. at the same time, um, how else are we going to talk about things? So on a really basic level, you know, 
do you want to describe yourself as something or not? What does that mean? But I think it's around not just the word, but the use of the word. So mm. where's that placed? What is that um, adding or taking away um, from from your brand or from your practices? And what are you doing behind that word is what's important, really. Um, and I think there needs to be a level of kind of reclaiming these, you know, term, perhaps sustainability or whatever we're talking about. So, um yeah, I find it interesting. I'm quite fascinated by the green uh, hushing one as well, because I've talked to brands, um, particularly large brands who, who, you know, I've got personal contacts at these sorts of places that will not release information um, because they see it as very worrying that they're going to get called out on um, on practices so they'd Mm. rather not say anything and I think we've built um we've kind of built an environment where people are scared to say what they're doing and what they're not and I think we really need to cultivate a community approach of more kindness really Mm. um and ensure that we can do that whilst also holding people to account when they're not um being yeah (laughs) kind kind to others ultimately What's your sense of where the consumer is in all this? Because you know, the the research that we uh, we follow, you know, says that obviously mm. the, the the new generations are you know they are looking for authentic brands. They're looking mm-hmm. for transparency. They need uh, you know brands to to speak their mind. To, to actually take a stand seems to mm-hmm. be uh, important. Uh, all the while, we we you know the the fast fashion giants keep uh, pushing out the, their their mm-hmm. product. So, what, what's your sense of the um, the readiness for the consumer uh, mm-hmm. for these issues? Uh, are they willing to uh, to uh, adapt? Very interesting question because that exact question is something that we've looked at with Lab Twenty Thirty, and we're releasing. Um, probably in the next three weeks, our sort of top line findings around that. And what you're talking about is something called the say do gap. So mm. what you say versus what you do. Um, and it it's a kind of common known thing that people, if they're surveyed, perhaps in a, in a survey and said, do you want to be more sustainable? We would all tick yes. I don't really think people are going to tick no as easily. Um, or if don't care, maybe, I don't know. But, you know, the, the information that we get based around um, what we say we'll do is something quite different to what we do do. Um, so we need to understand behavior and action rather than thought, um, which is what we're we're basically digging into um, at Lab 2030. And we've done a small set of research, which um, we will be releasing soon. And we will need funding to look at it on a greater scale. Mm. Um, But yeah, kind of really fascinating um, to look at the drivers behind um, what people do. And also, you know, we're an industry that seems to love stats and we're an industry that likes to regurgitate these stats around. So um, trying to challenge those stats a little bit as well with, um, yeah, a different sort of approach, I think is quite interesting too. Well, that's super fascinating. And, and I'm very much looking forward uh, uh reading, reading those uh, reports that you and the, yeah. the research that you're doing. And, and I'll be happy to, to, uh, um, 
promote it on, on scanravenmind.com. Um, Jody, it's been great talking to you. Is there anything Thank you, you. want to leave us with in, in this conversation that we haven't covered? I feel like this is just the beginning of something we could continue with, but, but yeah, time is I'm, running I'm out. I'm always here, Conrad. So, you, you know, I'm happy to talk to you anytime. Um, yeah. So just, just to, to remind people where to find uh, your work, uh, what's the mm-hmm. best way to connect with, with uh, Other Day and, and Lab 2030? Yep. So we've got um, otherday.co.uk. We've also got Other Day on po- anywhere you find your podcasts. And we've been doing those for coming up to four years now, actually, in June. June 20th is our four-year anniversary. Um, and then Lab 2030 is lab2030.earth. Um, we don't yet have an Instagram account for that because I can't cope with managing a whole nother Instagram at this stage without anyone to support uh, on that. Um, so yeah, that's not an Instagram, but we are definitely live on Instagram at otherday underscore world um, and you can get us there. And also trying to boost up that LinkedIn uh, following a bit more. So yeah, we're there yeah, too. We get a lot of traffic from LinkedIn. I yeah. feel like that's where the conversation <laughs> is right now. Yeah. Jojo Muter Hamilton, founder yeah. of Other Day Thank and uh, twen- uh, Lab 2030. Uh, uh, Thank uh, thanks for all the hard work and thank you for speaking no to problem. me. Thanks, comrade. Nice all right. See you soon. Thank you. You've been listening to the Scandinavian Mind podcast with me, Conrad Olson. This show was edited by Eric Sedin. If you liked what you heard, follow us on your preferred podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To get the latest news, insights and invites to upcoming events, sign up to our newsletter. Just go to scandinavianmind.com to become part of our movement. 